All right, welcome back to Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast, Monty and the Pharaoh, only seen here out of Indie Music Studios, straight out of Long Island. Abe, how was your Thanksgiving? It's pretty good, pretty chill. A lot of food. Lots of food? Hell yeah. Like, what's the specialty at your house for Thanksgiving? Well, my mom is, is the best cook I know, so I, I, I love the turkey, stuffing all. I, I, Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday. One thing I will tell you, right, so I grew up on my mom's food, obviously, like you're discussing, but once you get married, there's a quick switchover where you just become, you know, hooked on your wife's food, and then it becomes difficult to eat other people's food, too. It's uh, a kind of strange thing. No one one is a better cook than my mom to me, so it's going to take a lot, you know, to dethrone her. All right, well, we're excited. All the fans and the family are excited. It's very rare that you have an opportunity to have someone this special on your show. Do you know who we got on the show there, Abe? I believe I do. We have a legend. Pro Wrestling Royalty, Mr. Ricky Steamboat. Thank you, sir, for joining Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast. Hey, guys. How you doing? You might, uh, I just saw your name tag. You go by Mike or Monty or... How should I address you? You could call me Mike or Monty, whatever's easiest. Monty, usually people call me that. That's usually what they go by, so I'm good with that. Yeah. Okay. I'll call you. uh, (laughs) If that being said, I'll call you Mike. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I... And again, you know, again, part of me wants to call you Mr. Steamboat because of the ultimate respect I have for you, but in our earlier discussions, it will be Rick and... uh, Yep. What what an honor it is to have. How does it feel that people still, even someone my age, is in such awe of you for what you've accomplished in your life and your career? Mm. Well, you know, a lot of that has to be, uh, the reason being is, you know, in the mid-80s when uh, Vince McMahon took the business, and uh, decided to go national with it on TV, coast to coast. And um, up to production level, as I'm sure you could remember, a lot of televised wrestling shows were done in small studios with maybe 50 people sitting on one side, hard cam side, hard camera side. And then he... uh, you know, he would take it to arenas and coliseums with 10, 15, 20,000 people. And um, everybody in the in the world just took notice of that and, uh, you know, made wrestling bigger than life. And then it, in turn, it made all of us, you know, superstars and, and bigger than life, uh, you know, actors or athletes. Well... I and eventually everybody knew who you know Ricky Steamboat was on a yeah. worldwide basis and kind of helped that number one you're a really good looking guy and number two you could you could <laughs> wrestle like no other so I guess put that combination yeah. together and then you have one of the greatest pro wrestlers in the history of sport right well you know um I was always an athletic kid I can remember as back as eight years old playing football, baseball, basketball. Um, it wasn't until I got into 
ninth grade that I uh, I was actually going out for the basketball team at, at the high school. And, um, you know, I'm in the ninth grade, and, you know, and I'm, at that time I'm maybe five foot eight. And, um, you know, you got your juniors and seniors, and, of course, you're going to be – you realize you're going to be sitting on the bench a lot. And I just kept looking over in the corner of the gymnasium where these kids were wrestling. I had a mat down and they were wrestling. So uh, I went up to my basketball coach and I said, what are they doing over there? And he says, oh, that's our, uh, that's our high school wrestling team. And, you know, it didn't take me 30 seconds. I said, um, I said, see ya. (laughs) And I just walked over there and, Coach Reckonwall, he was there, and uh, I said, you know, I want to, I want to try out for the wrestling squad, and um, you know, they they had a weight class that was open, and I fell into that weight weight class at uh, 165, and um, started wrestling as just uh, you know in my, you know, freshman year there, and then uh, got got better as each year went by and my junior and senior year went to the state championships for uh i, I this was down in uh, florida st petersburg clearwater area where i grew up my dad was 22 years in the service and when he retired in 67 he went he went to st pete and um and retired there so uh I really enjoyed the sport. I, you know, and I played high school football, and I was what they call like a power back. So I was like in between a, oh, I don't know, a full back, half back, and a flanker back. You know, I could run out and catch passes, and at the same time run up through the middle. In my senior year, we had a pretty good, pretty good football team. We went nine and one, and um, so you know, I was involved with sports, and. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, I, when I got out of uh, high school, uh, I was going to start a junior college down there in St. Pete. But, you know, at that time, I was kind of fed up with the books. So I was uh, just doing manual jobs um, for a couple of years there. I was doing door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman for Kirby. I was selling Kirby <laughs> vacuums door-to-door. And... Um, you know, back then, and I'm going back to early 70s, like 73, 74, 75, 73, and 74, um, you know, they were almost $400, you know, for a vacuum cleaner. And you can go get a Hoover for 29 bucks off the shelf. So, uh, but commission on them were good. There was 100 bucks for each sale. So I would go out and knock doors like Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and try to get a sale each day, which meant if I got three sales, that's 300 bucks back in the early 70s. And um, then on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you'd find me at the beach. <laughs> and you must you know, have done well, that. right? Good-looking guy knocking on these, these these housewives. They open the door. There he is, Ricky well, Steamboat, yeah. selling a vacuum. And they're buying three of them at a shot, right? Yeah, well... I never got three sales in one place. I did get two sales in one household, you know. Um, but it was, you know, you, you you would try. I would try to always get three sales and then then um, head off and go to the beach. And um, I thought that was pretty good money. And 
I was always sort of a fan of pro wrestling with the Florida Championship Wrestling. Uh, the, the announcer there was Gordon Soley. Um, I remember as a high schooler, uh, us guys on the wrestling team, we would drive from St. Petersburg over to Tampa. And on Tuesday nights at the old armory, we would, we, we would be wearing our high school wrestling t-shirts. And we'd be sitting there in the first, second, or third row, just razzing the heck out of those, those pro wrestlers. And um, not knowing at the time that just if, you know, three or four years after that, that, you know, I would, I would be in the ring doing it. But uh, I had a couple of my buddies that always told me, even when, I, when this was out of school, that, you know, he said, you remember how we used to go to Tampa and we used to watch those pro wrestling? I said, oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. He said, and they'd say, Ricky, you ought to try that. You'd be good at that. You were a good wrestler and, you know, you ought to give it a shot. So, um, 1975, um, I heard about a wrestling school up in Minneapolis, uh, Vern Gagne, and at that time it was the AWA. So, uh, one day I just put my clothes in the car and uh, said goodbye to my mom and dad, my two brothers, and drove from St. Pete to uh, Minneapolis. God, it was like 1,800 miles. And um, got me a little efficiency apartment. Um, now, just prior to that, I was selling Kirby vacuum cleaners, but I decided to, you know, work harder. So instead of just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I, I worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then I got a second job at night where I was um, like a bouncer at a bar down there in St. Pete working nights. So trying to get the two jobs together and save enough money to get up there. And uh, I found out that the camp was uh, two and a half months. It was 10 weeks. And I said I needed enough money to pay rent and food and where uh, I could survive without having to get a job up there while I'm trying to go through this wrestling school. And um, school started November the 16th in 1975. And um, I went up there and got a little efficiency apartment there. It was like uh, almost a setup like you see in some of these, uh, um, like a Marriott suite or something like that. You'd have a little, little fridge, had a little one burner, had uh, mattresses on the floor, had a little uh, TV tray that doubled as a nightstand and it's what I ate off of. And um, that's the way I lived in that place for almost two and a half months going through that school. Yeah, it was from 10 o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. It was five hours of, of training. And I could, I could tell you some of the, that was the hardest thing I ever went through in my entire life. Nothing like the, the training schools of today, you know. So it's but, uh, so it was as tough as those documentaries show. Vern was really working you guys out. Well, you know, when I was, you know, Vern had uh, Rick Flair went to the same school, and his his class was the one before me. Okay, uh, Bob Bruggers, Rick Flair, um, Iron Sheik, Ken Patera, Jim right? Brun, jump, yeah, jumping Jim Brunzel, uh, Greg Gagne, Vern's son. Um, I think uh, Chris Olson, who was a big 
Olympic Oklahoma heavyweight. He was in that class, but their class was the one before me. It was two years before me. And um, I'll tell you real quick, on the first day we showed up, we, uh, there were 16 of us. And I, I felt like I was the only one from out of state. Everybody else was pretty local. You know, they had some barroom guys, you know, tough guys. And, and um, I think one other guy had an amateur background in wrestling in school, high school. And 16 of us showed up. We had to pay $2,000. That was the entry fee. Back in the year, in 75, that was a lot of money, 2,000 bucks. I remember minimum wage was, I think, a buck 50. Wow. And so, um, and uh, our coach, we called him coach, but the guy that put us through the paces was, uh, his name was Cosro Viziri. Is that name familiar to you? Sure does. Iron Sheik. Yep. Right? He put us through the paces. Now, at that time, Iron Sheik, I think he's probably about 5'10", and, he, he, you know, he weighed a buck 80. All right? So, uh, God, he had us doing these Hindu squats. Now, we were in the basement of a 20-story building. That picture there, he's about 250. But at, at the camp, he was, a, he was a buck 80. And, man, he was... He was he was like a steel pole, man. He was solid. And um, we were in the basement of a 20-story building. Vern's office was on the top floor. And um, it had high ceilings in the basement. That's where the ring was set up. And we first day, we went over to the stairwell. And now from the basement to the top, it was 21 flights. And he made all this run up to the top and run down. Now, of course, a lot of guys didn't make it. Um, I made it up and down. I think I'm not bragging, but I think I was in the best shape of pretty much all of them because I really took it upon myself that while I was in Florida, three times a week, I would work out with the weights and the other three times a week, I would go to the beach and I would run five miles barefoot in the sand. I had a spot to where I parked the car and I'd run two and a half miles up to this pier. They had a little coffee shop grab a coffee, and then run two and a half miles back to the car. And I was doing this three times a week to get in, get in shape. So I think a lot of the guys that showed up thought that they could just be tough and didn't worry about cardio. So, all right, getting back, to we would run the stairs up and uh, all the way up to the top, 21 flights, and then run back down. And then Coswell looked at us, and he paired us off, eight pairs, and he paired us off according to our size, try and make it equal to the guy next to you. So then you had to get a guy up on your shoulders, his head over here, reach between his crotch and grab his leg and you got him like in a fireman's carry and carry this man up 21 flights on your back. Of course, nobody made it, but regardless of uh, how many times you pause, Cosro was relentless on making sure that you made it to the top, even if you just took one step at a time and um, had to take a rest. And so we all got to the top, ran back down, and then your partner carried you up, and then you ran back down. And then he asked one of each of the partners to drop down to their hands and knees. So I dropped down to my hands and knees, and my partner's name was Buck Zumhoff. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, Buck, 
grab Ricky's ankles. And so I would have to wheelbarrow on my hands up 21 flights. And Buck is holding on to my ankles and I'm trying to go up each step one at a time with my, you know, after you get about the third or fourth flight, your arms are shaking, your shoulders are burning, you're trapped, your neck, everything, you know, and um, you'd collapse. And this is a cement stairwell. I had so many bruises on my face and forehead from catching the edge of the step every time my arms would collapse and um, make it all the way up to top and run it back down and then switch. And then you grab his ankles and he'd have to go up on his hands up 21 flights. Now, that's all we did the first week because it took, like I said, class was from 10 to 3. It took all that time for everybody to complete it. Then we were off on the weekends, and the following Monday, out of the 16, four showed up. A dozen quit. I was about to ask you how many fell out after the first week. A dozen quit. And um, the four guys was me, Buck Zumhoff, a guy by the name of Jen Nelson, and another guy by the name of Scott Irwin, mm. who wrestled pretty much in the Texas area and became pretty good. Yeah. And um, I think he passed away. Um, I'm not quite sure of the medical terms, but I think he had a retinal something cancer that went into his brain. And he was a young man. I mean, I think uh, late 20s. And uh, Jan Nelson passed away with um, an overdose. And then uh, Zumhoff is in prison for doing something with minors. Yeah. And so out of the four, I was, the, I'm the last guy. And then, you know, I went on with my career, but that was the hardest, you know, 10 weeks of my, my life. I, I told myself the only way I'm not going to be able to finish this is, is if they tell me maybe you ought to quit or come back and do the, the camp the next time. Um, I wasn't going to quit. And, um, uh, I went up there and I weighed 232 pounds. At the end of 10 weeks, I was 195. Amazing. <laughs> I was spent. Rick, I, I want to bring you back a little bit, though. You mentioned that you got tired of school. You, you just got a regular job. And your father, yeah. who was a lifer in the military, and uh, God bless him for his service. Yeah. 22 years. At what point did your father ever say, hey, look, join the military? And if he did, why didn't you? And then I'd like to understand when you said to him and your mom, hey, guess what? I'm going to be a pro wrestler. What, was, what, what, what were they like? What, what, was, what was that all about? Dad wasn't real, real uppity-uppy about me joining the service. Um, you know, I graduated from high school in 71, and they had the draft. But my number was like 300-something, so... Uh, there was no chance for me to get drafted because I had such a high number. Uh, even though the, my dad spent 22 years in the army, he wasn't he wasn't big and he didn't push because uh, you know in the late 60s there and the early 70s, you know Vietnam was uh, pretty strong, and um, and I think mom had a lot to do with it. You know my mother's from Japan. Uh, she was born in Kyoto, 
which was the original old Capitol. And um, I just, she never said to me, and dad never said that mom said, but I have a gut feeling that she just did not want to see her boys go off, uh, you know, to Nam or something. Didn't want, wanted to chance it. So it wasn't anything that was uh, even having, uh, you know, kitchen table talk about. Um, that day that I said I was going to be a, a wrestler and go to this camp, uh, my dad was good with it. But you know something? My mom was more proud and excited about me doing that. And she, you could see it in her face and in her smile and in her hug. But, um, you know, her last words were, you know, the, make, you know take care of yourself. Don't, don't let them hurt you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Love it. Rick, I want to go over a couple of news articles and then I want to get into your career a little bit. Um, okay. Recently, uh, wrongly shaming a kid for blackface in a gross virtual signal and perhaps the laziest Monday morning quarterbacking performance ever, Deadspin writer Karen Phillips smeared a pint-sized Kansas City Chief fan as of wearing a blackface wearing bigot and accuse the NFL and CBS of aiding and abetting this behavior. What were your thoughts about that when you heard that in the news? I thought it was completely ridiculous, you know, to um, put an emphasis on a young man that was a Kansas City Chief fan. And, you know, it, I've never been to a Kansas City Chief game, but I, um, you know, I like I like watching Patrick Mahomes, and the Chiefs is one of my favorite teams to watch. And um, you know, whenever they show the crowd there, and uh, you know, there might be ninety thousand people there at the stadium, and fifty thousand of them are wearing what the kid was wearing, and to isolate and point that out to try and get a ridiculous point across you know there's just so many issues right now that bother me about the direction that this country has been going for the last three and a half years that it is it is just brainwashing propaganda and it to me very upsetting let's let's stick on that subject a little bit um i agree with you what where do you think this all started going wrong that I, could I say that this country is really becoming soft and we're not able to handle criticism properly and we're making a lot of excuses for our actions nowadays? What are your thoughts about that? Where do you think this country started going backwards? Um, I, I, I never saw... You know, I was never really big into politics until about the last three years in which I started noticing changes. Um, I never knew that um, in some of our more uppity elite colleges were, were teaching the young people more of a socialistic style of governing instead of our capitalism. I never knew that. Um, it, maybe because I just wouldn't bend an ear or wasn't that much interested. But then um, 
more and more of uh, stuff becoming more visual to my eyes and you know and they tell you don't believe what your eyes are seeing well it's your eyes don't lie to you what what you see and then after that is what you hear and I just um, I don't know if the country's getting soft I think the uh, I'm just I'm just gonna say it the Democrats have just come out with something so shockingly revealing and since they were able to this at last election gain control and power um, been being able to uh, use that on you and and it's even more troubling now that you know some pieces of our government going after um, civilians you know our teachers that that are expressing a voice about what's happening in school and and trying to protect their kids and um, people being censored when when uh, you know our first amendment with the freedom of speech and um, it just behooves me how they can continually and i'm going to use this word lie and 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 procrastinate uh propaganda and to use that as uh, a weapon and you know that old saying if you tell a lie enough times you you get people starting to believe it and um just things that have gone so wrong with our our country and then they can turn around and say, well, let's uh, blame it on the Republicans because it's their fault. And I'm thinking, how in the world can it be their fault when you guys are the one in control and everything that's been going on is because of what you've been doing? And, you know, um, they're, they're using, using the, you know, the Republicans as an scapegoat because I think they're, they're, they're starting to see that the American people are not buying, you know, what they're being told it's just not it's not right and it's also not correct and um what you know that old that old thing about uh, if it ain't broke don't fix it this country in the past 200 plus years has been this you know the strongest country in the, in the world the youngest country to be able to expand and grow as it did and it was all because of the uh, values that our fathers, our forefathers put forth to give everybody a chance and a break and equal opportunities. And I just don't understand how they see that their way of doing things, of just basically gonna end up with two classes. You're gonna have the very, very rich and then you're gonna have everybody else underneath, you know? And it's just, it's, um, it hurts my heart and it turns my gut and, uh, you know how much mm, how much this country has done for me you know you know I'm half Japanese and I was I was bullied when I was a kid and made fun of you know slanty eyes yellow skin and all that but um, you know both my mom and my dad you know they uh, you know they just you know, take it on the chin, you know, you're better. And uh, I, I, I grew up with parents that believed in right and wrong. Uh, if you do it, do it correctly.
um, do it the right way. Um, and, um, you know, I watched my mom being mocked when I was a kid. Um, we, you know, we lived overseas and, um, of course it hurt, but, uh, but you know, that, that was, that was people that were not Americans. Those, those were, we lived in Turkey and Germany and Italy. And, um, and it was, you know, I said, they're not, my dad would say they're not U S citizens. So, you know, don't worry, don't worry about what they think because our, our country is the greatest. And, uh, and so, you know, I get off on my soapbox on uh, start talking more and more about it, but it just it just hurts me to see this direction, especially what has happened the last you know three three and a half years. Well, I'll 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 say I totally agree with you. So um, hopefully, change is you know, and, and 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 you're a New Yorker. I am. <laughs> yeah, I am. Do you know where I was? Do you know where I was born? Where? West Point. Were you really? Nice. Poughkeepsie. Very nice. My dad was in the, my dad was in the service. Now he wasn't a West Pointer, but he was he was stationed there. Okay, and uh, he met my mom in '49, and they uh, they came back to the states, and um, um, when he came back and brought my mom, he was for it went to west point and uh that's where i was born i have a younger brother arthur who's a year younger than me and that's the, the two of us were born there so we're you know people ask me where were you born i said new york and they, they find it aren't you from hawaii i mean that's what they <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, i said no that was just a wrestling that was just a wrestling gig man that was that was just uh you know i had the polynesian look and that's how i got the steamboat name from uh Sammy, Sammy Steamboat, who was a true Hawaiian, yeah. who wrestled down in Florida for um, Eddie Graham. Odd, odd question. So, your 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 father met your wife. She's from uh, his wife. She's from Japan. Yeah. Um, one, did your mom miss Japan? Like, did she want to go back um, after coming to the states? And two, did you ever have the opportunity to meet your grandparents when you were younger? No, um, my mother's father died when she was, he passed away when she was young. I'm saying best that I can recall is that, you know, she was a teenager. Um, he was pretty high up in a company and I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know the company, but uh, that company took care, my mom said that company took care of, of um, what would have been my grandmother and uh, the family through the company uh, since uh, her father was pretty high up in the company and he passed away at a very young age. So they were taken care of. Now, um, I'm trying to remember the other part of your question. Did your mom want to go back to Japan at some point, okay. right? Was she homesick? All right. When they left, when they left Japan and then went to um, West Point and I was born, um, the, right after that, they went to, we went to Italy. Now during that move, my mother finds out later, way later, and I'll get to that, that her family moved from Kyoto to Tokyo. And during this time when my mom was with my dad in West Point, Italy, she did not know that the family moved. Now my mom's last name is Ito, I-T-O. 
That's like the Smith and the Joneses over here in the States. <laughs> wow. You know, it's, uh, and so, um, my dad was trying to get in contact with my mother's family through the American Red Cross and through the Red Cross of trying to get to, uh, the, they over in Japan trying to get a hold of, uh, family members, but they could never find because there were so many Itos, I mean, millions. So um, I told you, like, they left in 49 or 1949 or 50. And um, so we'll fast forward to the early 80s, late 70s. I was going over to Japan and working with a promoter over there called Gianto Baba. And um, I would go over there and tour for three or four weeks and then come back to the States. And so in 1984, I, uh, I went over there about 13 times. And 1984, I went over there and I, um, I asked the promoter, Baba, I said, would you mind if your announcers would, during my match, um, tell the people who's watching who I am, and then I am in search of my mother's family. And um, my mother's name is uh, Takako Ito. And so he agreed. They made that announcement while I was wrestling. The very next day, a young Japanese boy, like a runner, came to my hotel room, and he showed up, and he says, we have big response uh, people last night. And I was so excited. I said, oh, really? You know, maybe this might be my mother's relatives. And uh, I said, how many, how many people? He said, we have 200 names. And I said, 200? <laughs> so uh, my, uh, my mom's family can't have, you know, 200. Well, there were so many Itos, people were just saying, yeah, I'm related. But anyway, he, he said, what do you want me to do? So we're sitting in my hotel room and he had the list of names and the telephone number next to each name. And I said, would you mind maybe calling 10 people just to see what's going on? So he dialed the first number and it was, it was my mother's oldest brother. Mm. First name, what are the odds? Unbelievable. So. And I, I couldn't speak Japanese. I mean, I could do a little restaurant talk, maybe a little cab, you know, cab talk, how to get to the hotel, you know, maybe order some, you know, sushi or something. But uh, uh, I couldn't have conversation. So through the kid, and he was interpreting, and we, I said, uh, okay, we got to go on tour, and I won't be back to Tokyo for two weeks. I said, does he have any wedding pictures? Because I remember my mom and dad showing me their wedding pictures when they got married over there in, in Japan. He was a GI, you know. He had one stripe on his sleeve. And um, he said, yes, I have pictures. So after two weeks, we came back to Tokyo, and he met me in the lobby. And he opened up the album, and sure enough, there were the same pictures that I saw my mom and dad had. So he gave me his information, his you know address and phone number, and now, before I left on this tour, I never told my mom and dad that um, what I was going to try and do because my dad was so unsuccessful for, God, you know, this is from 
you know, 49 to 84. You know, it was just, he tried and it just couldn't, couldn't make it happen for my mom. So when I went back and I went to my parents and I talked to my dad in the kitchen, I said, I got some information here. This is, this is mom's oldest brother. <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. And I gave it to my mom and she, there was, I think, a 12 hour difference in time between um, U.S. and their uh, East Coast time. So she called up the number and her brother answered and was talking, you know, like 90 miles an hour in Japanese. And here's my mom. She could understand what he was saying, but she had a hard time replying because she had not spoken her language for 30 years. Mm. You know, it was, it was, she could just get out a few words here and there. And um, so I was going to go back over to Japan and do another tour about four or five months later. And Giant Baba arranged to pay for my mom's airplane ticket to fly from, they were living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he flew her all the way from there to, to Tokyo. And we landed, and we, we were waiting for our luggage. And off in the distance, people that would get their bags and go through customs and then go through these automatic doors that were opening up. And, of course, those people, they might have had relatives waiting for them or friends. But I kept looking at the doors that were opening, and I saw this one guy who just, every time the doors opened, boy, he was looking, he was looking, he was looking hard. And I said, hey, Mom. Next time those doors open, there's a guy standing on the left side that keeps looking real hard and the doors would open and my mom saw him and now we're over way over on the other side of, the, of this huge area and, and then the doors would close and then another pair of people would walk through the doors and they'd open up and then they would look and finally they waved at each other and she turned to me and she said, that's my youngest brother. His name is Duhay. So we grabbed our bags and went through customs, and um, and when the doors opened, then there she met with her youngest brother, first time in over thirty years. So he was taking us. He told us, my mom didn't even know, but she asked, "Is mom still alive?" And and he and he said, "Yes, mom's still alive." And I think at that time, mom was like eighty-five. My grandmother, her mom, and so. He took us, he, he said, mother is living with the oldest brother. That's, a, that's one of our cats there. Anyway, so we get to the house, and for the first time, her mother and her daughter embrace. And, um, and that's the first time that she has seen her daughter in over 30-some years. And neither knew if, if one was dead or one was alive, you know, because for all those years, there was never any contact. So um, I got a ride. I said, okay, mom, you're going to stay here with uh, your oldest brother and your mom. I'm going to go back to the hotel. I got to go on tour. So I catch a cab and go back to the hotel and um, leave the next day, go to some city, wrestle, um, stay there that night the next morning i get a i go down to the lobby to get a coffee and this young boy comes up to me and says um 
uh, are you Ricky Steamboat? And I said, yes. Uh, you have telephone call. And I said, wow, this is odd. So I go over to the front desk and I pick up the phone and it's, and that's my mom. And she goes, she always called me Richie. She says, Richie, I'm, I'm ready to go home now. Oh, <laughs> I said, what? I'm, I'm ready to go home now. I said, what's up, mom? You only, it's only been one night. I finally finished argument with oldest sister. And now I'm ready to go home. <laughs> See, her oldest sister never approved mom marrying a GI. You know, right after the Second World War, right? Right. Four or five years after. And, and I was saying, Mom, I said, I do, I, I'm under contract. I have to finish this tour. I said, Baba paid for your airplane ticket. You know, our departure date isn't for two more weeks. I said, you got to fix this. Please fix it. She's, she's like, oh, okay. I, I fix it for you. So I go on tour, wrestled, you know, two weeks. And um, at the end of the tour, back at the hotel there in Tokyo, and there is my, my mom with all her brothers and sisters. There were six kids. It was like four, four brothers, and, and uh, there was two girls, so it was six kids. And they were all sitting in the lobby with my mom, and they met me. And um, you know, she told me, she says, yeah, we fixed it. Everything's good. You know, so that was uh, – so when we left and we're heading to the airport to catch the flight back to the States, she looked at me and she says, I'm ready to go home. Amazing gift, though, you gave her, man. Think about that. It's an amazing gift you gave her. But, you know, real quick to her, U.S. was home. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right, next news story, then we're going to get into a little bit of your career. Former WWE star Tammy Sonny Sitch gets 17 years in prison for deadly DUI crash. Former pro wrestler Tammy Son Sonny Sitch has been sentenced to 17 years in prison for drunkenly colliding into another car, killing a 75-year-old man with a blood alcohol level four times the legal limit. Thoughts on that, Rick? You know, I just, just vaguely just um, crossed that story the other day, so um, I, I really don't know the ins and outs of it. I remember meeting her, you know, at one time back in, in around, oh, I'm going to say like 07, 06, uh, I was an agent guy working with the WWE, and I think she was wrestling at the time, and, you know, and might have just run into her. I, you know, really can't say much because I, I, I really don't know her. Um, you know, obviously what she did was very wrong, but... Uh, you know, like I said, I just heard Wind of the Wind, the story came out a couple of days ago. Well, speaking of something like that, right? So obviously, no matter what forms of life, people people run into certain addictions and stuff. While you were wrestling, um, 
were you ever uncomfortable wrestling with a wrestler because you might know they were on some sort of substance? And again, I'm just a fan, and my question would be, like, Saturday night's main event when you wrestled Jake and you get dropped on your head at DDT, which I'm assuming was actual concussion that you received and pretty dangerous. Yeah. Did you have concerns that was my call. with Jake? That was not not when uh you know him and i worked almost every night for god we had a good run for almost maybe a couple of months you know with i had the dragon in my corner this guy and uh he had that snake and we you know we we sold a lot of tickets there were a lot of curiosity seekers that wanted to come out and see what was going to happen during that match um I will say this, that every time that uh, I stepped in the ring with Jake Roberts, he was straight as an arrow. And, um, you know, what he did after hours was his own business. But uh, during the, during working with me during that run, um, and I also worked with him when back in the day when there were territories, and it was with uh, Jim Crockett Promotions in the Mid-Atlantic region there in North South Carolina and Virginia, and he was working there at that time as Jake the Snake Roberts, uh, and I had worked with him there. That he was, he was always a, uh, you know, he was always on top of things. He was never ever in a uh, bad way, or you know, couldn't get to the ring or stuff like that. You know, the horror stories that you hear later on. But uh, no, I always, uh, I remember a comment he made, and that was. Uh, and it wasn't to me. This was something like on air somewhere. And he said, when I found out that I was going to work with Ricky Steamboat, you buddy, you better get in shape. So, uh, you know, I guess he took a real serious point about working with me in the ring. And, uh, God, we had, we had some five-star matches, him and I. He was, he was a great psychologist in the ring. He's one of the greatest, I would consider, in the business and knowing what to do, when to do it, and what what move to do and why you would do it into telling a story in the course of a match. And he was able just to on the fly, just be right on top of things. Boom, 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 boom. He was, he was a great worker to work with. Now what happened that night though, on Saturday night's main event, you know, millions of people watching this show, probably not the best yeah. time for something to go wrong. What did happen? Well, you know, I don't remember how the, you know, um, the talk came out about uh, DDT on the floor. And um, I'm, I'm thinking best of my memory, you know, this old noggin's been dropped a few times. <laughs> so um, I made the suggestion, and I know Vince was there. Uh, you know, they had those... Uh, cushion pads all around the ring. I said, you need to pull that. You, you need to jump me, beat me up, pull the pad away, expose the cement floor, and and then DDT me on the cement floor. And Jake was like, no, no way. He said, it, it, it may kill you. And I said, I, you know, whenever you got DDT, you get your hand down there in time to protect yourself. So I said, don't worry. I'll, you know, I've taken your DDT. I said, I'll, uh, I'll get my hand down there and, you know, let's make it real. Well, he went to DDT me, and I didn't get my hand down there in time, and it was real. Oh, my, my, it, it felt like a hand grenade went off of my head. And um, 
you know, even to this day, he, he tells people, he says, yeah, Steamboat was knocked unconscious. I had to pick him up like a rag doll and drag him into the ring. And, and we've had talk about it and we've had laughs about it. And I said, Jake, I was never knocked unconscious. I had all my faculties. I was limp because that's the way you're supposed to be if you ever get DDT'd on the floor. If the fans saw me help you pick me up, get to my feet, help you roll me in the ring, I don't think it would have the impact. So I went, I went like a limp noodle for, for the reason that that was what would happen if you, you know, really got, well, I really got DDT'd on the cement floor, but it, uh, I had all my faculties and I wasn't knocked out or anything. But, uh, you know, he thinks that, he, that I was knocked out because I wouldn't have, you know, I was, I was limp when right. he picked me up and wrote, tried to get me in the ring. He said, man, I almost dropped a nut trying to get you in the ring out there, man. <laughs> <laughs> almost got a hernia. He said, damn. I said, well, that's, you know, you want it to be, you know, make it look real. That's, that's, that's realism right there. But I, I was good. Yeah. Let me ask you this. My, so my own noggin, my own, my own noggin uh, swelled up pretty bad and, and and I didn't get black eyes till maybe about two days later when the blood finally started to move around. And, uh, boy, I looked like Neanderthal, man, with my forehead stuck way out there, like, you know. Yeah, well, like worked, worked pretty well. How yeah. did you stay so unscathed in such a hard business, all the traveling, uh, you know, yeah. you know, people fall into drugs, things like that. How did you yeah. stay straight? Like, what was it that, made you stay that way you know um you know i got you know bruised ribs and separated shoulders uh um it wasn't until recently until you know i've had knee surgery i've had a knee replaced i've had my hip replaced i got a rod on my back you know and arthritis setting in all over the place but during the time when i was working i think i think one of the uh you know i I was always the guy that go to the gym and there was a lot of us, you know, maybe half of the, half of the crew would find themselves going to the gym uh, every day. But uh, I think one of the biggest things that was my saving and grace and not knowing at the time, but I knew it was doing me some good is I would spend a lot of time stretching. Um, I would find a corner in the locker room or down the hallway or something and 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 just stretch and i could get to where i could almost do splits and um, i would do this maybe a couple matches before my match was on and you know for 20 30 minutes you know break a sweat and get warmed up and you know and there was a lot of guys you know uh, sitting in the locker room reading a magazine and they say hey bobby you're up and, and just get right up and go to the ring and i i just felt you know uh, I started doing it in the, my rookie year, and I just carried it forward all all those years to make sure I, I got a real good stretch, and I felt limbered and warmed up in my joints, and I think that, that really saved me. At what point do you get into bodybuilding and actively competing in bodybuilding? That was in the late 70s. Uh, I always worked out, and uh, I mean, uh, I didn't start working out until actually I, I – uh, made the decision to go to Minnesota. So about eight months prior 
of leaving and I, you know, going up there in November, uh, I, f I found a gym and I started working out, like I said, three times a week and then running on the beach three times a week. So, um, but then after that, I continued working out and um, I got to where I thought I was looking decent pretty good never on a national level but maybe on a state level so in the late 70s i uh, uh, just started doing some uh, competing in local uh, state and regional stuff you know maybe mid-atlantic you know it, it'd taken two or three states and uh north mr north carolina you know i won my weight class didn't win overall but uh, i was in about five different bodybuilding contests uh, it was hard because I was still wrestling and you're on that real strict diet and you're watching your calories and you have no energy to get in the ring. And, uh, and the guys that I was working with at that time knew that I was going through that and then they were pretty much carrying me through the match. But uh, I, it was just a personal thing, maybe something on my bucket list that I just wanted to check off. I'm going to show you something real quick. Hang on. Sure. Just take me a second. Mm. Actually, I'm going to... Uh, this is this is my what they call the, the um, um, man cave. Yep. <laughs> this, this right Let me just give you a real. This is in my office here. Uh huh. Uh, Got a virtual tour a of the steamboat man yeah. cave. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then uh, over here the all the dolls and everything that they, you know, I, I don't know. They got about 15 or 16 Ricky Steamboat dolls, but I want to show you this piece. Okay. This trophy, right? This trophy right here. All right. I'm going to slide this over. I don't know if you can see this picture. Yeah, we could kind of see it. Yeah, absolutely. That's me. You know who this guy is? Is that Snooker, right? That's Snooker. How do you compete against Snooker? What is that all about? We were at the WBBG Southern States. That was North and South Carolina contest. The judges brought the two of us out, out of all the contestants, to do a side-by-side -side. and because um, the points were so close. And at the end of the show, they gave me uh, – this is it right here. This is they gave me the first place trophy. Amazing. And that was the uh, only time I, you know, Snooker was an animal. Man, he was, you know. And at that time, he probably was close to forty years old. And uh, just a good fond memory of Jimmy. I always loved working with him in the ring. Everybody talks about Ricky Steamboat's arm drag, and I'll tell you a story of how I got that. But anyway. Uh, Snooker was the best guy to feed me for the arm drag. He was the best guy to feed me for an arm drag. Wow. He was more of a, his body was like, you know, he was like a beast, you know, it was raw. I had more maybe like a pleasing physical look, pleasing to the eye, you know, more symmetric than uh, Snook. But, uh, yeah, that was the only time we competed, and I, I, ne I beat, narrowly beat him by just a couple of points. Rick. And let me tell you the story. You know, you, know who, you know who originated that arm drag? If you're familiar with my arm drag, I get way up in the air with the guy before I hook his arm. 
And everybody that worked with me knew, I said, you got to jump as high as up as you can and just do a forward somersault and I'll hook your arm and then we'll land together. Well, I stole that from a guy by the name of Jack Briscoe. Mm. Jack Briscoe originated that flying style of an arm drag. So I was, everybody thinks of Ricky Steamboat's arm drag, but actually Jack Briscoe was the originator. And you just, you just, you just improved on it, right? I can get up higher than Jack, I guess. <laughs> maybe, you know, a lot of, but truthfully, it, it just depends on the guy feeding you. If he can't get up in the air, you can't either, you know, because you're underneath him. If he only just gets up a little bit, you you can't get any higher. So yeah, you know, there, that's a picture of me and Dory Funk. Yeah, you know, I was I, yeah. I was listening to you speak if you, about if, if, if you if you look at the audience, that's in Japan. Wow, <laughs> amazing! Yeah. I was listening to you speak about snooker. You know, you have your own family life, and I get that. How hard is it yeah. to lose these brothers throughout the years? Is it because oh, it's man, like your man. own little family? You know, your other family. Yeah. How difficult is that? Um, you know, I, to me. Uh, the only time when I felt that I was close to all the guys that I worked with in the ring was at the time that we were all together. And um, then I got away from the business and then I got back in in about 2005, you know, working with Vince and being an agent, a road agent and working with guys again. You know, but but this is just being mean, and I, I I hope it doesn't sound selfish, but it just when for me when I uh, got away from the business, I just sort of wanted to be done with it, and then you just hear of who passed away or who is down and out or who is sick, and you know uh, I would have a moment or two. Um, but it, I don't want to make it feel like I'm heartless, but it's, you know, for me, it was a brotherhood during the act of time and everybody just sort of, you know, went their way as everybody uh, got out of the business and went their separate ways. I don't, I don't know of too many guys that kept in contact even after the years they were out of the business. Um, I run into them more at these convention signings, these these fanboys, um, and um, you know, and and have a moment. And of course, there's always an embrace and a hug, and it's good to see you. But um, yeah, and it's just a few times they say, "Hey, are you staying at the hotel?" Yeah, well, let's go down and have a beer. Okay, uh, but you know, for me, that was only maybe just a few times, and and I've done a hundred of these signings around the country so it you know we're real close and tight at the moment but i i i think it it's i don't know what the mindset is that you know one once we're done we're done and i hate to make it sound like we're done with each other but it's it it isn't something where you go out of i don't go out of my way to try and locate and find and and correspond with uh some of the fellow guys that I had great matches with. 
you know, uh, only only really one guy that I sort of stay in tune with, and I went to visit when he was down, and that was Ric Flair. At one time, he had that when he was in the hospital at Atlanta, and I was living in St. Pete. And me and the me and the wife we jumped in the car, and you know, and I drove from St. Pete to Atlanta straight away. Uh, I left late in the afternoon, five or six o'clock. Didn't get in till two or three o'clock in the morning. And then I was there at the hospital the next day at eight o'clock or something to meet with him. And he was in a self-induced coma. And um, his wife, Wendy, was there. And uh, I was just sort of looking at him over his bed. And he all of a sudden, and this was, you know, they, they tell me this afterwards. This is the first time he woke up. And I'm looking at him. And he opened his eyes for the first time after being in a self-induced coma for a few days. And he looked up at me. And in the way Rick Flair would do it, he goes, Ricky Steamboat. Unbelievable. <laughs> right out of a coma. <laughs> That's funny as hell, boy. So, Rick, you're going to have to appease me now because now that rolls into this question since you're talking about flair. Your name is synonymous with the greatest matches of all time. I mean, that's just another yeah. credit to your ability as the professional you are. Now, I know you do documentary. Undertaker and Shawn, Undertake, hey, Undertake Shawn Michaels had a hell of a WrestleMania match. They, they certainly did, yeah. but here's yeah. the question. You do these documentaries. One's on flair. You talk about the trilogy, you talk how great that was, and then you do a documentary on Savage and obviously that WrestleMania three match, iconic. Yeah. Here's my question. To Rick Steamboat, which were the greater matches? The WrestleMania three Savage or your trilogy with Flair? Okay, I'm gonna give you an answer and I don't wanna make it sound like I'm a politician. Um if you want to take a raw match and put two guys in it, and the only thing they know about the match is maybe the last two or three minutes of the match, which would be the finish, that would be myself and Ric Flair. And that would, to me, say that we were two consummate professionals. Now, I, I'm always mentioned the Savage match because to me that was the hardest match for me to do, and it's because we didn't. Savage and I never had any matches leading up to WrestleMania three. I would like to have called them uh, tune-up matches. Savage was a different uh, psychologist in the ring. And that would be, he wants everything to be set up and lined up. And, you know, when you have a tune-up match, you could talk about some of the things you want to do in the match. And then you go out in the live audience in some of these tune-up matches and see how, what kind of response you would get from the, from the crowd. If it wasn't good, when you got back to the locker room afterwards, you say, you know, for the big pay-per-view coming up, we're not going to do that spot because everybody just farted all over it. So you'd have opportunities to put things together. And Savage and I never never had that. But what made it difficult is that he wanted to have everything put down in on in stone, you know, in writing. 
well, it wasn't in writing. He just wanted everything to be set up and from A to Z. And if in the middle of that match, thing, uh, the fans were not buying it, it would be very difficult to change it and go to another different direction because he was so uh, steadfast on what the next steps were. You know, just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. So, you know, Flair and I, we would, we could work an hour and only go and, and I would meet him in the locker room. I said, okay, all right, champ, you know, they want us to go 50 minutes tonight on a 60 minute time limit. What would you like the last three or four minutes to be? And, um, you know, I got a real quick story if you want to hear it. We would, we wrestled in Charlotte, North Carolina a couple of hundred times over the eight years that we were, I was there and he was there for maybe 10. But uh, uh, we had wrestled at Charlotte and we had done a, a couple of one hour broadways, which meant in the main events, he had 60 minute time limits and we had wrestled to a draw. And then we came back to, they wrestled Charlotte every two weeks at the big Coliseum. We came back two weeks later, we wrestled to another draw. So we're back two weeks later now for the third time, and George Scott, the booker, comes up to us and says, okay, you guys have done a couple of one-hour broadways. Ricky, if you don't mind, let's get Flair over tonight. But uh, let's, let's uh, you know, let's, let's do it where he, he does something behind the referee's back, and he steals the win where the referee doesn't see that he cheated. I said, okay, no problem. And I looked at Rick, and I said, what do you want to do? And he said, uh, when you start to come back, and when I feel it's right, I'll drop to my knees in the corner. I'll put my hands up like I'm trying to beg you off, and you just charge me. And at the last second, I'll duck under, and I'll grab the back of your ankles, and I'll sweep your feet up from under you. You go flat to your back. I'll look at the referee, and I, I'll tell him to get down and count. And there's a very important reason for that. Get down and count. And as he goes down to count your shoulders, that's when I'll put my feet up on the second turnbuckle to use it as leverage to hold you down. Now, the reason why he told the referee to get down and count is because he did not want to see the ref. He did not want to middle the referee or give him the chance, any kind of chance, that he would have caught a glimpse of Flair putting his feet up in the second turnbuckle to get leverage. So we taught, when he told me that, how long did that take? Maybe 30 seconds? Mm. Now, George Scott, the booker, said, how about if you guys just go about 20, 25 minutes and, um, and then do the finish? And we said, great. So we go out there. And we, now, we had wrestled two 60-minute draws. We go out there, and we start wrestling. And, the, you know, the announcer goes, 15 minutes gone, 45 minutes remaining, you know, and then, 20 minutes gone, 50 minutes, you know. And so 40 minutes remaining. And so he, uh, so I look at Flair and I said, you ready? Because you remember the booker, George Scott said, go about 20 and then do the finish. And then at the 20 minute call, I looked at Flair and I said, you ready? He goes, not yet. <laughs> 25 goes, 30 minutes goes. He goes, 30 minutes gone, 30 minutes remaining. I looked at Flair and I said, you ready? He said, not yet. So now we're up to 45 minutes gone and 15 minutes re remaining. I said, are you ready? He goes, not yet. 50 minutes gone, 
55 minutes gone, 56 minutes gone, 57, 58, 59 minutes gone, one minute remaining. I said, hey, asshole, are you ready? <laughs> he said, Ricky, start your comeback. <laughs> now, understand this, the fans in the Charlotte Coliseum were almost sold out saw us wrestle to two one-hour draws, and now there's 59 minutes. With what, so what are they thinking? Oh, they're going to wrestle to another one-hour draw. I actually saw people starting to get up and leave. So I'm bouncing flair all around this ring. I'm trying to cover him with everything that I know. And then with about 15 seconds left, the announcer goes, 15 seconds. He drops to his knees in the corner and puts his hands up to beg. And then I hear 10, nine, and I bum rush him. He sweeps my legs out from under me. He looks up at the referee, Tommy Young, get down and count. And the referee turns and goes to count my shoulders. He puts his feet up in the corner as the referee counts one, two, three. The announcer's going five, four, three, ding, 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 two seconds left on the clock. And they got one of those big basketball clocks that hang over the center of the uh, Coliseum. Two seconds. He rolls off of me, and he's laying on his back looking up at the ceiling. I'm, st I'm still on my back, and I'm looking up. And he looks over at me, and he goes, wait for it. Wait for it. Because a hush came over the crowd. And then here it came. Flair, you no good son of a bitch. You cheat no good. And he looked over at me and he said, we got him. And he rolls out of the ring and he's hunkered down and he's running back to down the aisle to the heels locker room. And they're throwing so much crap at him. And he gets in the locker room. Now, I get up and wave at the fans, and they're saying, Ricky, you get him next time. You know, he cheated and blah, 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 blah. And I go the other way to the babyface locker room. I walk in. Then in the Coliseum, around back, there's a hallway that goes around the building. So I go out. Customarily, what you do is you go into the other guy's locker room, and you shake his hand, and you thank him for the match. And so I went in, and George Scott is just berating Flair. He goes, oh, so you think you're the booker now, huh? You want to call the show, right? I told you to go 20. You went 59 minutes and 57 seconds, and I told you to go 20. What the heck's the matter with you? And I, that's when I walk into the room and this action is going on. He looks at me and he says, Steve, get your ass over here. You're part of this too. So he's yelling at me, and I don't say a word, and I walk over to the door, the door that you go out of the heels locker room that leads to the ring. I go open the door and I stand behind the door where the fans couldn't see me. And I'm looking at George Scott and I'm pointing like this. Listen to him, George. They're still screaming at him. They're still screaming. I shut the door and I said, that's all I got to say. And I walked out of the room. Hmm. 59 minutes, Amazing. 57 seconds. So Timing. would it be fair to say then the flare matches were your favorite? 
You see, that match was never televised. That was just a regular house match. Yeah. But working with him and for us to feed off each other in the course of a match, do this, duck, you know, block my punch, kick me, you know. Um, but then Savage, everything was laid out, A through Z. You know, when we started talking, when I told Randy, I said, you know, we're not having any tune-up matches. He went, what? I said, Vince said, we're not having any tune-up matches. I, he said, I'll make, he said, we're going to make our debut day of the show. Well, we got we to gotta start putting something together. Damn. So we started meeting with each other whenever we could on the road. You know, I was doing the injury thing with my throat and uh, uh, meet with Savage on uh, days we were shooting TVs and, and we started writing things down and finally we got I, I brought this yellow tablet this legal pad and i started we got up to about 160 something steps and with each step there was like three four five things to do like you know believe it or not guess what step number one was step number one was lock up and i said randy we don't have to write down lock up because we know we're going to lock up Write it down, Dragon. Write it down. I said, oh, my God. So, number one, lock up. Number two, whatever. Do this, this, and this. So, after we got it all down, we would then quiz each other. And I would say, okay, Randy, step number 28 is this, this, and this. Tell me the rest of the match. Step number 30, blah, 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 blah. Step number 31, well, you know, and then he would do me. he go, okay, Dragon, number 67 is this. Tell me the rest of the match. So, you know, I think when we did that, it was so stressful to try and remember every single move and, and turn and turn to the right, turn to the left, block this, do this, you know, and then... I think what made the match different because that was, you know, 1987, you know, an average match would have eight or nine false finishes. Okay. That's a, that's a one, two, and the other guy kicks out of it. In the average match, we had 20, 20 false finishes. And you had to remember 20 false finishes in consecutive order. You had to remember it. And both of you be on the same page on the same move. And um, plus all the other moves leading up to the false finish. And uh, there was two times. There was one time during that match where Randy had a brain fart, flatlined. And he, Dragon, I'm lost. What are we doing? I, I started to rip off the next sequence. And he's, oh, okay, I got it. And then later on, I had a flatline. I said, Savage, I'm lost. And he would rip it off. And I said, I got it. You know, and we ended up... But, I, you know, when that match was over and um, I'm laying in the ring, I was so exhausted. I had not been in the ring for almost three months because of the injury thing that I wasn't supposed to be wrestling. I was so exhausted. I looked up at the top of the Pontiac Silverdome and I said, it is done. Mm. It's over. Um, a sigh of relief. It is over. I was actually looking up at God. And I was thanking him for it being over. It it is done. What does Vince McMahon the, say to you after that iconic match? Um, you know, I I don't remember. Okay. 
I remember getting to the locker room and I, I, I almost passed out. I was so exhausted. I mean, there was a lot of people coming up and saying, what a match you guys. But, you know, I honestly, you know, I honestly don't remember. Uh, we got pats on the backs and, you know, and, you know, I remember, you know, after WrestleMania, they have the big party, you know, the after dinners party there after the show and everything. And I remember sitting there and old timers like Gorilla Monsoon, uh, Arnold Stolen, you know, you know, these guys were old school, hard knocks and, um, you know, shaking hands and giving me a hug and couldn't believe the match is it's. How did you guys do that? But I've often said over the years, the, the consummate guy that that uh, I go to for me was Ric Flair. Because we could just say two or three things of special things we wanted to do in the match and then go out there and, and wrestle for an hour. And all of it is just for the moment, called on the spot, feeling each other out knowing that uh, what I was going to do next, and he knew he might have known that five moves back, you know, so. But, you know, the publicity that we got out of the Savage and Steamboat match, you know, that match, it was just off the hook. And, uh, you know, it was a one-off, and we were, able to, we were able to pull it off, and everything that we put in that match was strictly on our gut feeling because we didn't know each other in the ring. We didn't have any tune-up matches. We, we didn't know each other. But is it fair to me to say, though, that the paydays up north were substantially better than down south? That the what? The paydays were substantially better up north in oh, WWE yeah. compared to NWA, WCW in the south. Well, it, that's it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I don't want to make it sound like a no-brainer. You know, when Vince you know, decided to go coast to coast in, in all the major markets, you know, we're pretty much wrestling in venues that would seat 10,000, 15,000, you know, 20,000 people. So you're working off a percentage of the gate, the money taken in for the night, you're going to make more money. You know, working down in the Carolinas, we could have sold out uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, but the sellout was 1,200, you know? So... Yeah, I, I personally, and I'm pretty much the other guys too. Was when I started to work for Vince, with my my income, you know, doubled and sometimes almost tripled, but only because we were wrestling in venues that had three, four times the seating capacity. And don't forget about the merchandising too, right? You had tons of merchandise. That was yes, and for, right? yeah, and for, yeah, and and for the first time, everybody was was picking up on on merch, which uh, was a first. You know, you're getting a, a check every quarter and uh, something, you know, it was uh, almost like found money, you know, plus I'm making, you know, making top money uh, working in the big, you know, big cities around the country. And then you're, you're getting merchandise money, too. So it was uh, it was it was very, very lucrative. So. At some point, when you win the Intercontinental title, being from up north, that was always yeah. the gateway to becoming the world champion. And, you know, God willing, if they were going to make you world champion, the money could have been really crazy. I know why 
they took the belt from you and why you 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 stepped away to be with your family. All right, all right, you you tell me why, and I'll tell you if that's right. So, from what I understand, you left. You were having a child. You wanted to take a couple yeah. of weeks off, and right. then they decided, for whatever reason, to take the belt off of you. Um, is that correct? That is, uh, when that angle with Savage and I came about in December of 86 and he came off the top rope with the belt and then, then says, I'm going to, I'm going to drop the intercontinental to you at WrestleMania three. I just told him and I was being very upfront. I said, I just want to be upfront with you that I'm going to ask for two weeks off in July. I said, my firstborn, that's when it's going to happen. And I said, I've been on the road for, you know, at that time, it's been uh, 10, 10 years in the business and, you know, 300 shows a year. And I said, I just don't want to miss my firstborn. And he said, no problem. And um, so everything was going according to plan. And I, I, I think it might have been around eight weeks after WrestleMania, March, April, May, you know, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten weeks that on a TV, I was walking into the building and Vince said, Ricky, I need to talk to you. So I came over and he says, uh, we're going to, we're going to take the belt off you. You're going to, you're going to work with uh, Honky Tonk and uh, we're going to, we're going to put the belt on him. And I said, Vince, um, you know, when you told me you were going to drop the belt to me, i I didn't say this a second ago, but I, I'll say it now. I said, you told me that I was going to have it for a year. And I was up front with you and said that I wanted two weeks off to, to be with my firstborn in July. And uh, you said, okay. And his response back was, well, I thought about it, and we just can't have the belt dormant. Keyword there, dormant for two weeks. So, uh, yeah, so I dropped the belt to Honky Tonk, and I, I think it was within the, that same evening that I went to Vince and I said, uh, you remember in July when I wanted two weeks off? He goes, yeah. I said, well, I'm taking six months off, and I'm taking it now. And I walked out. Hmm. That's a gutsy <laughs> move. That's a gutsy move. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, just, I'm looking at, you know, what's, what is right is, you know, and what's wrong, you know. I know you know, there's politics, right? There's politics yeah. in every, every walk of life. But this just wasn't right, you know. As, as, you know, him being a dad should understand. And as hard as all of us work on the road and being gone away from families, and I just wanted two weeks to be with my firstborn and say I, the reason once you can't leave the belt dormant, for two weeks, it was, yeah, it was, it hurt. It, it it made me so mad and upset. I didn't show it to him, but it 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 was more of a hurt. As hard as we all work, and then I couldn't have this once in a lifetime opportunity to be with a child that's being born. You know, it just didn't make sense. But you know, it's politics. Well, speak, speaking of your child, how's your relationship with your son now? I know he tried his hand at wrestling and had an injury. Yeah. How's he doing? Um, 
you know, his back's never the same. He herniated four discs, but he's very fortunate that um, he found a girl and um, he knew her, oh God, through family relation and friendship. Uh, you know, they we got pictures of them when they were like five years old. Two little kids, right, running around. And uh, and then they remet, you know, like maybe 15 years later and started seeing each other. And this, Richie was into wrestling and going through the school and in uh, Tampa, the first, the first WWE school in Tampa. And then uh, he got hurt. And she was going to college. Uh, she was going to law school, and uh, they found they found a way to make make it through. And then she turned out to working for a firm, going out on her own, starting her own law firm. And they have now got four kids: three sons and a and a, and a daughter. And during this time, he has decided and accepted the fact to be a stay-at-home dad, which uh, I was happy to hear, uh, especially in the, you know this day and age where at least you have a parent at home. And uh, they got sort of like a farm with goats and pigs, and, and she's doing very well with her law firm, and, and he's doing a great job with the kids being a stay-at-home dad. So, you know. All in all, I, I, I truly believe it came out for the better. Don't know what the business would have done to the, done with to them with him being gone three hundred days a year on the, on the circuit. A lot of blessings there. All right, Rick, you've been with us a while. I want to thank you for joining us. One last question in your storied career. I asked Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. If there's one regret in your wrestling career, what would that have been? Um, walking out for six months. I could have just stuck with the plan and taken my two weeks. And been a, a, a yes guy. You know, and... Uh, I think that really it set me back for a while. I felt it was justified, but then you know when you're thinking about pride and how hard you've been working and all that you did for the company, and then you feel like you got uh, shafted in a very very wrong way because it was dealing with family. But uh, you know sometimes you know emotions overtake. You better just think this out first before blurting it out on the very same evening that you're taking six months off and see you. You know, I, I think I should have taken a moment and thought things out. And, and if I know I, knowing me, I probably wouldn't have done that if I would have just taken a few days and calmed down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pride's a tough thing, man. Pride can get in the way of a lot of yeah. stuff. That's for sure. What we learn as we go on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess and, I have one more that, question that, for you. Go it, okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your go thought. Ahead. No, I was just going to say that that lesson is, uh, has helped me later in life to 
before being uh, quick, uh, making un unrational, quick decisions to, to take a moment. And you notice that when you asked me that question, I didn't have a hesitation on giving you an answer because there was, a, there was some really tr truism behind it that it was a lesson that taught me that I learned from and, and try to carry it forward today. You know, try and don't let your, because emotions, it could be the devil on your shoulder and you're, you're looking over on your shoulder and he's saying, you know, do it, do it. Right. Right, and you got to say no. Let me let me have a moment here, you know. So that's what it taught me. Well, we all learn lessons, right? That's what life's about. <laughs> yeah. With yeah. that being said, I personally, and I'm sure everybody else, wants to thank you for all you've done for wrestling fans out there, the years and years of enjoyment. And on a personal level, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time out and coming on this show. I know you're a busy man. Yeah. And I just want to personally thank you. Thank you for all you've done, sir. Well, you know, I, I get, I get, I get a lot. I get that a lot. And, and believe you me, um, it's uh, very appreciative. I somehow, some way feel that when I do these uh, conventions for me, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to say thank you back. To the fans that came out to support me and support the business you know uh it's i feel in some way even though you know they may be buying an eight by ten but in some way i feel like um i want to say thanks for you know for for being here because you know bottom line is because without them we, we wouldn't have what we have and um I'm, I'm very i'm very comfortable now and uh and it's all because of people coming out and uh, wanting to be entertained. And you know, at the time that I was wrestling, that was one of my major focuses is that uh, I wanted to make sure that the fans, um, at the end of the night, my goal was to have the match of the night. And it didn't matter if I was in the ring with Jake Roberts, Ric Flair, you know, Rick Rude, Greg Valentine, you know, Macho, it didn't matter. I wanted to have the match of the night. And, uh, you know, I, I I poured it out and gave it my all every single night. You know, wrestling in front of twelve people. <laughs> One time it was me and and Shane Douglas against Steve Austin and the late Brian Pillman up in a I think it was Fancy Gap, Georgia, and a snowstorm had come in. And during the intermission, they told the people, "Well, if you think." You're gonna have a hard time to get home. You better leave now. And we had a, it was a small armory, sold out. And when the four of us, we were the only main event after the intermission, one main event. When we went out, the front row was the only people there. You know, like maybe 12 people on each side, 40, 50 out of, you know, there was a 800 or a thousand in this armory. And, uh, any given night, any other wrestler other than us four would have went out there and wrestled five minutes and then called it a night. But we went out there and went almost 30 minutes, which is the front row sitting there, and gave them a hell of a show because we wanted them to go home and tell everybody that walked out uh, the next day or the next days 
that they missed a hell of a match between the four of us. It's, you know, I always wanted to put out and make sure that the people got their money's worth and that we walked away with the match of the night. Good, good stuff. Uh, real quick, Jason Morning wants to know, do you still practice blowing fire? I, gee, no. <laughs> um, whew, that was, uh, you know, I, w I was taught by a guy in Florida named Brian LaPalme. It was one of those little parking lot Walmart circuses, small, you know. And uh, he used kerosene. And that was kerosene I put in my mouth every night to blow that fire. And uh, real quick story, uh, I went uh, uh, some uh, mid-Florida, maybe near Orlando, he was set up and he was uh, through the company, the WWE, they, they found him and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to teach Ricky. They went to Barnum and Bailey and the, their fire breather said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to give away my secrets. So they found this little circus company in Florida and Brian LaPalme and we're out in the parking lot and he's telling me, uh, now the big top, their tent wasn't fully up. It wasn't erected yet. So he said, well, Ricky, be aware that whenever you do it outside and you have your torch, hold it up in the air and always look at the flames and see which way the flames are going. That'll tell you the wind direction. And make sure that the wind is coming from your back so that the wind is blowing away from you. So he fills his mouth up with kerosene. He holds the torch up. And just as he puts it to his mouth, the wind shifted. And as he's spraying the torch, the wind is blowing the kerosene on his face. Mm. And now I'm looking at a 12-year veteran running around this parking lot with his face on fire going, ah, ah, ah. And uh, they sent an office boy down. And I looked over at him and I said, you see that guy running around? He, you know, running around like with his face on fire? I said, you call Vincent saying, tell him I ain't doing it. I'm not doing it. Look at this. And so he, Brian LaPalm comes running back up to me, and he said, no, 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 it's just superficial. It's like a bad sunburn. It's, I'm okay. <laughs> so he said, come back tomorrow when the big tent is, is done, and we'll do it indoors. And I came back, and he started with, a, you know, like a little shot glass of kerosene. And then it went on to larger, you know, almost like a cup, filled, enough to fill your whole mouth out and blow the fire out. And... Uh, but there's a, yeah, there's a fire breathing story there with a veteran, twelve years of doing it, is running around with his face on fire. I could, the next morning when I showed up, he's in his little, Scotty, trailer, it's these little mini trailers you tow behind your car, and I knock on the door and he shows up and he's got these big water bubble blisters. Oh boy! On his face. Yep. And he's standing there, and all of a sudden he's taking his fingers and he's popping them, pop, 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 you know, and the, the water, just, and he's laughing. He did it as a joke. And that was, I had another moment where I turned to the guy that the office sent down, and I said, I ain't doing it. Look at him. <laughs> so, you sure I mean, will stay, boat. Yeah, the eye, yeah, eyebrows were gone. But this was a fair-skinned redhead guy that was teaching me how to blow fire. So you can imagine how bright red his face. It just, uh, it was like yeah, a bad sunburn. Anyway, that's my fire breathing story. 
and a hell of a story it was. Thank you again, <laughs> sir. Have a great yeah. weekend, and thank okay. you for everything, and thank you for being on Long Island's number one pro wrestler broadcast. All right. I appreciate, appreciate your show, and I appreciate what you do. You're, well, you're, a, you stand up, you're a stand-up guy. You really are. You well, know, I appreciate what, what that, you sir. Yes. God yeah. bless. God bless. Thank you. All right, guys. The great, the great Ricky Steamboat. What an honor. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. He was fantastic. What'd you think there, AB? That was amazing. That was a really good story about um, you know, him going to Japan and finding like his his mom's Dude, family. That's how insane. how amazing was that? I that mean, was one of the craziest. All stories. I was thinking, like, man, I wish I could have done something. Remotely close for my mother like that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, just like to have that many people reach out to you, and you still are able to find the people. And you, she got to meet him. It was it was great. That was a great story. You know, it's amazing. You you always hear how great a guy he is, and even in the wrestling world, what a great guy is. Unbelievable guy. Great storyteller. Amazing person. Yeah, definitely. Um. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining me. We love you all. We'll see you next Thursday. April. We'll see you next Thursday. All right, guys. Love you all.